Section 14 of Henry II by Louis Francis Saltzman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8. Henry and His Sons, His Downfall and Death, Part 1. The economic effects of the rebellion were far-reaching. Those who had been involved in it returned, it is true, nominally to the position in which they had been before the outbreak, but their lands had been systematically ravaged, their castles given to the flames, and blackened ruins told for a generation the tale of their disastrous failure. So far as England was concerned, these effects were more localized and less extensive. During the war, Mowbray's castles of Kirkby Malzard and Axholm had been destroyed, and at its close the same fate befell Thirsk. Thetford and Brackley, in the two Kentish castles of Allington and Saltwood, had been dismantled before the end of 1174, and so had Geoffrey de Turville's castle of Weston. Next year saw the overthrow of Gruby and Tutbury. Dudley, the castle of Earl Ferrer's son-in-law, Gervas Penel, was raised, and its owner fined five hundred marks for his share in the revolt. His neighbor and comrade in arms, Hamoud Amaski, being at the same time fined three hundred marks. The strongholds of Huntington and Leicester were rendered incapable of again resisting the king's forces, and the great English military architect and engineer, Alnoth, came down to supervise the leveling of the walls of Framlingham Castle and the filling of its fosse. For strategic reasons, the fort at Walton, which had successfully resisted the Flemish invaders, was destroyed in 1176, and also the keep of Bennington, and the Bishop of Durham only saved his castle of North Allerton by a payment of two thousand marks. What other castles disappeared we do not know, but such as remained were taken into the king's hands, the Earl of Gloucester yielding Bristol and Gloucester with great reluctance. The expenses of the war must have strained Henry's finances severely. For the expeditions on the Scottish border alone we know that Renolf de Glanville and Robert de Stutville paid over two thousand pounds to their troops, and the cost of the mercenaries employed on the continent must have been very heavy. A large but quite uncertain sum must have been obtained from the ransom of the many important prisoners taken, and further contributions were levied in the form of fines. The Earl of Leicester was impleaded by Bertram de Verdon, Sheriff of Leicestershire, for injuries done by his men, and fined five hundred marks. Nine citizens of York who had sided with the rebels were fined thirteen hundred marks between them, several of them being also fined smaller sums for receiving goods belonging to Flemings. These latter had been banished from England, saving their lives at the expense of their property, and the township of Selby was fined five pounds for allowing Flemings to carry away their goods, William of Selby five marks for not detaining Flemings whom he saw pass through the town, and Folk of Selby ten pounds for hiring his ship to the Flemings. For the most part these foreigners were cloth workers, and their forfeited property, consisting chiefly of wool, did not yield any great sum. A more fruitful source of income arose from the estates of the Earl of Leicester and his companions during the time that they were in arms against the king, 
and from these only about three hundred pounds were obtained between september eleven seventy four and the restoration of the estates to their owners apart from the twenty six hundred marks assessed upon the citizens of york the earl of leicester gervas plainel and hamo de Mosky, five hundred pounds was raised by smaller fines upon persons who had sold horses or armour or given other assistance to the rebels even adding in earl hugh's fine of seven hundred marks and the five hundred marks which gus patrick was fined for the surrender of appleby the total amount accounted for at the exchequer as wrung from the vanquished party seems to have fallen far short of four thousand pounds searching for some device to fill his empty coffers henry hit upon the idea of vigorously punishing all offences against the forest laws which had been committed during the time of the disturbances accordingly in august eleven seventy five he held pleas of the forest at nottingham and afterwards at york in person and sent special commissioners to hold similar pleas in other counties the baronage protested and richard de lucy produced the king's own writ issued at the time of the war apparently suspending the forest laws and authorizing any person to take wood and venison in the royal forests it is as difficult to understand why henry issued such a writ as it is to see upon what grounds he set it aside possibly a writ intended to apply to certain special cases such as the taking of venison for the provisioning of the royal troops or of timber for military works had by a misunderstanding or error of wording been made to apply generally and henry declined to accept responsibility for the mistake however this may be it is clear that his action in pressing these pleas was at least a piece of sharp practice and the heavy fines exacted can hardly be regarded in the circumstances as anything but extortion the sum of the fines inflicted appears to have been thirteen thousand four hundred and fifty pounds and although much of this was not paid at once and some was in the end remitted the eventual yield seems to have been quite ten thousand pounds about seventeen hundred persons were immersed and when it is remembered that to these must be added a large number of cases in which whole townships were fined it is clear that the total number of persons affected must have been very large a few fortunate counties such as kent sussex norfolk and suffolk contained no royal forests but elsewhere every class of man was swept into the legal net from the great baron to the villain and including the clergy henry had indeed succeeded in wringing from the papal legate cardinal ugocione the concession that the clergy should be subject to the forest laws the legate had been sent over to settle the rival claims of the sees of canterbury and york but his arrival only tended to aggravate matters at a synod held at westminster on the eighteenth of march eleven seventy six the endeavours of archbishop roger of york to oust richard of canterbury from his seat of honour on the legate's right hand led to a disgraceful scuffle in which archbishop roger was attacked by the supporters of the southern primate knocked down and in the end ignominiously ejected from the chapel the legate indignantly dismissed the synod and was with difficulty persuaded to retain his official position 
in july he left england having accomplished practically nothing in the matter of the rival seas if popular rumour was correct in believing that he had been sounded by henry on the question of a divorce from queen eleanor in this matter also there had been no result the one important result of his visit had been that the clergy were for the future to be subject to the forest laws and also to plead in the king's court in matters touching lay fees it is said that by way of compensation henry recognized their exemption from lay jurisdiction in all other matters agreed not to make a practice of retaining vacant bishoprics and abbeys in his hands and granted that the murder of a clerk should be punished by forfeiture even if these concessions were made they were far from reconciling those of the clerical party who still held becket's ideal of the supremacy of the church restored to favour with the pope and victorious over as formidable a combination of his enemies as could well be formed against him henry was now at the height of his power recognized throughout europe as a prince whose friendship was worth seeking in his court at westminster on the twelfth of november eleven seventy six might have been seen ambassadors from the emperor manuel of constantinople the emperor frederick the duke of saxony the count of flanders and the archbishop of rheims about the same time also came a joint mission from the kings of castile and navarre asking henry to arbitrate between them in a dispute about certain castles and other territory accordingly in the following march henry heard the arguments of the rival embassies and gave his decision after consultation with the peers of his court sentencing each side to make restitution to the other and further condemning the king of castile to pay navarre three thousand maravedis a year for the next ten years this king alfonso of castile had married henry's daughter eleanor in eleven seventy and about the time that the subject of this arbitration was first broached at the end of eleven seventy six another of henry's daughters joan was on her way to marry king william of sicily negotiations for the marriage had been opened earlier in the year and after her trousseau had been bought in london at a cost of over one hundred pounds say twenty five hundred pounds of modern money she travelled through france with a brilliant retinue to st gilles where she found awaiting her the sicilian nobles and the bishop of norwich the unfortunate bishop had been sent on ahead earlier in the year to sicily to make final arrangements and had had a very rough time the country through which he passed was suffering from famine and he could hardly get provisions for himself or his horse accommodation sometimes failed completely so that he had to sleep on the rocks or sand of the seashore and when he had a roof over his head he found that the fleas had no reverence for his episcopal or ambassadorial dignity so that he was very pleased to complete his mission by handing the princess over to the sicilians and to hurry back to england in time for the christmas festivities at the court at nottingham two other marriages occupied the king's attention about this time the young daughter of count hubert de maurienne having died henry had to find another heiress as bride for his favourite son john and ultimately decided that the great estates of the earl of gloucester would make a suitable endowment for the landless prince the earl had three daughters of whom two were already married to the earl of hartford and the count of evreux 
and henry now prevailed upon the earl to agree that all his estates should be settled upon the remaining daughter isabel and that she should be betrothed to john for whom the king had also reserved the great estates of his uncle earl reynold of cornwall upon the latter's death in eleven seventy five with similar disregard for the rights of his daughters and lawful heirs having settled this matter to his satisfaction henry found himself confronted with the question of richard's matrimonial affairs richard had long been pledged to marry alais daughter of king louis and she had been in accordance with the usual practice of the time brought up at the court of her intended father-in-law she was now about twenty and the king of france was pressing for the marriage to be performed and in eleven seventy seven a papal legate was dispatched from rome with instructions to lay henry's dominions under an interdict if he should refuse to carry out the agreement in august of that year henry crossed to normandy and next month met the legate at rouen and on the twenty first of september held a conference with king louis at ivry at this conference the promise that richard should marry alais seems to have been renewed in an informal way but henry had no intention of fulfilling it and indeed it seems probable that he was at this time himself the lover of the princess who had succeeded the famous rosamond clifford in his affections when that beautiful favourite died End of section fourteen.